Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Norton. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. In case you happen to be visiting or it's your first time today, uh, it's good to see you. Um, Really, this is a place for anybody, wherever they are on their journey of faith. And so uh, today we're going to jump back into um, a series that we started at the beginning of the summer. It's called Reforesting Faith. And we're going to read a bunch of uh, little stories, four or five little stories about two guys and a whole bunch of trees, um, trees that you probably have never even noticed are a part of uh, these stories or really a part of the larger story of Scripture. And then um, we'll ask one really important question at the end about these trees, and it has way more to do with your life uh, than you think it does. So let's jump in. Um, the Bible introduces us to a guy named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 11, in fact, we did a whole series um, on one story in Abraham's life during um, Lent uh, this past year. But when we first meet Abraham, he lives in Mesopotamia and uh, he and his wife Sarah are living there. And God says to him one day, I want you to move to a new land, to a new home that I will show you. And uh, when you do, I will bless you and I will bless your wife, Sarah. And I will bless both of you with kids. They didn't have any kids at this point, and they were getting older in age. And in fact, I am going to bless the entire world through you. And Abraham says, okay. And he packs up all the stuff, and he moves to this new land called Canaan. And when he gets there, this is what happens. Genesis 12, verse 6. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abraham pauses at this place called Shechem. It's a town in the northern part of Canaan. So he enters from the north and he's going to travel from north uh, to south. Um, But we're told that he stops and pauses not just near Shechem, but he pauses at this tree, the great tree of Moray. And we're told that at this tree, God doesn't just speak to Abraham, but for the first time, God actually appears to Abraham. Somehow Abraham can literally see God. Now we don't know how or what that looks like or in what way God appears to Abraham. We're just told God appears to him in a powerful way. And he affirms Abraham. He says to him, look, it's it's great that you've been traveling so far and I want you to know that now that you can see the land, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, to your offspring. And the word that is used literally in Hebrew here is to your seed. Now think about what a seed is, right? A seed is the beginning of a plant or it's the beginning of a tree. It's this tiny little thing that you can barely even see. And we talked about this several weeks ago. Scott led us to explore this idea and and Abraham can't see what God is talking about at this point, right? Because Abraham doesn't have any kids. He has no offspring. He has no descendants. He has no home, right? And God is saying, that's okay. You see this massive tree here? Maybe God pointed to the tree. We don't know what kind of tree it was. Scholars think maybe it was an oak tree. But it's almost as if God is saying, what I'm going to do through your 
family. It's like this great tree. But it's all going to start with a seed that you can't even see yet. And this encounter with God is, is so powerful that we're told Abraham actually builds an altar there and he worships God. Now, uh, the book of Genesis continues and it says that Abraham keeps traveling. In fact, he scopes out the entire land. He travels from north to south and then he goes to Egypt. And then he comes back and he returns to the southern part of Canaan. And it says this in the next chapter. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So Abraham makes his home, decides this is where I'm going to stay and reside, near a town called Hebron, which, by the way, uh, is still there in Israel. In fact, it has some of the oldest and best preserved archaeological sites from this time period when we think Abraham lived. But we're told not just that he lived near Hebron, but he lived near this great forest of trees named Mamre, actually after a local Canaanite who maybe owned the land. Now, Genesis continues with a whole bunch of other stories about Abraham and his life at this point. And uh, if you follow them over the next few years, Sarah still hasn't had any children. And it's almost as if God made this promise to Abraham about his seed. And Abraham is beginning to wonder, is it ever actually going to come true? And so one day, look at what happens. Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Don't we know what that feels like, right? It's a hot day. He's sitting there in his tent, and it says, Abraham looked up, and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. So Abraham's sitting At his tent, we are told he's near this forest. He can even see the trees there. That's an important detail. These three travelers show up. And Abraham can tell there's something special about them. There's something unique. He doesn't even really know what it is, but he runs from his tent out, and it says he bows low to them. The word in Hebrew for bow low is the same word for worship. It's whenever you worship a god or or worship an idol. It can be used to worship something or to show deep respect for something. That's what it means to, to bow low. And then Abraham said to these three men, next verse, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. And when he says my Lord, he could just be using a, a title of respect It's also the same word that's used when people talk about the Lord God. It's singular, which is interesting. So is he now addressing just one of the men, or is he addressing all of them? Why does he say, my Lord? But he says, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. And let me get you something to eat. He's saying to these three travelers, stop here, take a break. I don't want you to keep going. I want you to to hang out here. I want to spend some some time with you. I want you to stay. Let me serve you. I'll get you some water to drink. It's a hot day. I'll get you some food to eat. Why don't you rest here under this beautiful 
tree. And so Abraham actually goes and he tells his wife Sarah and they bake some bread and then they go slaughter a calf and they prepare a meal. This wouldn't have taken just a few minutes, but several hours, right? And then it says, while they ate, Abraham stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. In other words, it's going to happen, Abraham. God is going to keep his promise. In fact, it's going to happen really soon. We'll come back here next year and you will have a son by that And the writer of this story in Genesis will later very clearly say that Abraham realizes these are not just random visitors. That Abraham's intuition about them is right. There's something special that this was actually God himself meeting with Abraham. That it was in this moment, it's like God took on flesh He became human and he sat with Abraham and shared a meal with him and told him in no uncertain terms, what I've said is going to happen, Abraham, will indeed happen. And three times in this story, we're told, this mysterious and powerful encounter takes place under a tree. Uh, There's actually a famous painting of this encounter it's a, it's a Russian icon, actually. Um, if you can't see this one, we'll put it on the screen. Uh, it's done by uh, Rublev, a Russian painter back in the early 1400s. In fact, it is probably the most famous icon in the Eastern Orthodox Church. You can see the focus is on these three visitors that come to visit Abraham. You can see the tree in the background. Sometimes the icon is called the Hospitality of Abraham, Most commonly, it's called the Trinity. Because Rublev saw what so many others have seen reading this story, that these three visitors perhaps are symbolizing the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there are all sorts of symbols that Rublev painted in this Icon. It's a bit worn down and hard to see now because it's, it's very old, but it's believed that Rublev saw that God the Father was there on the left and the Spirit was on the right and Jesus is the one in the center. The cup on the table represents not just the water they drank that day when they met with Abraham, but it also represents Jesus' Sacrifice, his blood poured out for humanity. The tree of Mamre behind him represents not just the tree that was there, but also perhaps the tree of life and the cross on which Jesus would give his life. But most importantly, these three figures are sitting around this table in a very circular, communal relationship. And it's almost as if our eye is is drawn into the center of the circle. And like Abraham, we are invited into a relationship with God, into communion with the triune God. And in the original story in Genesis, we're told very clearly several times, this encounter, this invitation, this communion happens 
at a tree. Now, there's another tree encounter early in the Old Testament. It's one that's actually more famous and one that you'll probably remember when I begin to tell you about it. Because Abraham does have descendants and his descendants move from Canaan to Egypt after there's a famine in Canaan and the descendants grow and grow. And in fact, we're told very specifically at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Exceedingly fruitful. That's plant language, right? That is tree language. This language of them multiplying and increasing in numbers and becoming so numerous that the land is filled with them. That's dandelion language, right? Uh, That's, if you're from the Southeast, that's kudzu language, where it just begins to take over everything. And so don't miss that this tiny little seed that Abraham couldn't have even seen has now produced the abundance of fruit, And you know the story. The Egyptians become worried as a result. They enslave the Hebrew people. This goes on for hundreds of years. A baby is born named Moses. He grows up. He gets into some trouble. He runs away to the wilderness to become a shepherd the rest of his life. And after many years of minding his own business, doing his own thing, one day this happens. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And of course, most of us know the rest of the story. God begins talking to Moses from this burning bush. And Moses has this deeply mystical and mysterious encounter, not just because God is talking to him, but because there is this bush that is on fire, but it's not actually burning up. It's not being consumed. Now, the bush that's on fire is, it's a tree. We don't know what kind of tree it is. The the Hebrew word here is actually a strange word. It's only used in this story and nowhere else in the Bible. And so we're not sure what kind of of plant or or tree this is, but the the desert or the wilderness of Sinai doesn't have many large trees. It does have these, these thorny, large bushes that grow. And so most translations of the Bible have always just used the word bush here, and that's the way we know it. But it could easily say the burning tree. And God tells Moses in this encounter that he has indeed heard the cries of the Hebrew people and he will deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And in fact, Moses is going to be the one to lead them. Now, Moses is not excited about this. He has all kinds of hesitations and doubts about whether he can actually do this or not. And God basically says to him, no, it's going to happen. And in fact, Moses, you are going to lead the Israelites right back to this very spot, to this tree and to this mountain to worship me. One more story. Moses goes back to Egypt. He challenges Pharaoh, right? 
God sends the plagues. Eventually, Moses leads the Hebrew people out of Egypt. The Egyptian army chases them. God does another miracle to save the people from destruction at the Red Sea. And they leave the Red Sea, setting out to meet God in the wilderness at this place where Moses had met God at the tree and on the mountain. But then it says this, for three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Marah, which must be the name of the place there, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. The Hebrew word there is Marah. It's actually repeated four times in this sentence. It literally says, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah because it was Marah. That's why the place is called Marah, right? Just to explain the whole meaning of the place there. And so the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? So even though God has done all of these miracles, right, to to save the people, before we're too harsh on them, they've gone three days without water, which is a really long time. The human body cannot survive much longer without water. Your body starts shutting down if it doesn't have that much water in three days, right? And when they finally find some water, it's not clean. It's bitter. It's probably really salty. And if they were to drink it, it would actually make them more sick and more dehydrated. And so look at what happens. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the water. Now, sometimes if you're reading the Bible, this is actually translated as the Lord showed him a piece of wood. But the Hebrew word is literally a tree. The Lord showed him a tree. It's probably a dead tree lying on the ground. Maybe a really big branch of a dead tree lying on the ground. And so he takes this branch or this tree, he throws it into the water, and the water became fit or safe to drink. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And they camped there near the water. So God saves them with what? A tree. When they're about to die, God gives them life from a tree. And then he leads them to a whole forest of trees, an oasis of water and vegetation and life and trees to sustain them. Now, I could keep going, right? I could go on and on about plants and trees and seeds and fruit in the Bible. And we are only in the middle of the second book of the whole Bible, right? But I want to just stop here and ask one simple question. Why does God... Use actual trees to reveal himself to people. Actual trees in actual places. I mean, think about it. God could have just spoken in a voice or a dream to Abraham, but he doesn't. He appears to him at a tree, and then he meets with him underneath a tree. God could have spoken in a voice or a dream to Moses, but he doesn't. He meets with him from a burning tree. God could have told Moses to to simply snap his fingers in the desert and and water would appear for the people. That's not what he does. He takes unclean water and he turns it into clean water so that the people could live 
And he saves them using a tree. And so why does God use actual trees to reveal himself to people? And I have two answers I want to suggest for you today. First, we need physical places to experience God. And second, we need physical objects to mediate his presence. So so we need actual physical places to experience God. This is why I led a group of people on a wilderness retreat a couple of weekends ago. We went into the mountains and we camped among the trees, overlooking this meadow of wildflowers. And we all felt like as we were camping there in the trees that we reconnected with God, that we experienced him in a way that was just a little bit more rich, a little bit more meaningful, a little bit more uh, tangible than if we were all just sitting on our couches in our living rooms. Now, does that mean God is not present on our couch in our living room? Right? Of course not. God is present everywhere. He is, uh, to use a big theological word, omnipresent. The issue is not God. The issue is us. We need these physical places. Places without distraction. Places that can clarify our focus. Places that can deepen our awareness of his presence. Places that, that have some quality of of sacredness that we can't even really explain or put into words. We can only experience places that are transcendent. And there's something about gardens. There's something about forests. Something about these places with plants and trees that have that mystical quality. We need these actual physical places to experience God. And then we also need physical actual objects to mediate his presence. You you see, there's something about the actual water of baptism. When someone is baptized, it it symbolizes in this rich way and it mediates the, the, the washing and the cleansing that the Holy Spirit can bring in our lives. There's something about actual bread and wine or juice of communion, when we, when we come to the table that actually symbolizes and mediates Jesus' sacrifice for us. It's what makes communion so rich. I mean, we could sit here and say, let's just think about Jesus' sacrifice. But to actually get up and to, to eat this bread and, and to drink and to actually remember there's something about these physical elements that's so important. And there's actually something also important about trees. I don't know if it's their vibrant green color, the way they mysteriously go from one seed that seems like nothing to something so magnificent, the way that they produce fruit that we actually eat and that nourishes us, or the way that many trees seemingly die every year when their leaves turn brown and brittle and they fall off. And then magically every year in the spring, it's like they come back to life again. There's something about these physical objects in our lives, in our world, in God's glorious creation that mediates his presence to us in unique and mystical ways. And so let me ask you this. When was the last time that you just sat under a tree and you asked God to meet you there? 
Or when was the last time that you strolled through a garden of flowers or plants? Or, or you walked through the forest without your phone, without any other distractions? And you ask God to just show you something new about himself or about the world. Or, or better yet, what would it look like if you made it a regular habit or a regular practice to put yourself in sacred places and sacred spaces, places with plants and trees where you might experience God in a way that you can't even really explain, but is so real. And hear me right, it doesn't mean that God can't meet you in your daily grind. It doesn't mean that God is not involved in your work or in your family or in your studies or in your chores or in your hobbies or in the the challenges and, and the hardships that you face every single day in your life. He is there in those. In fact, he meets us in the ordinary maybe way more than we realize. But I also read the Bible and I'm struck when I do about how often people experience something transcendent, something sacred, something mystical, simply when they're around trees. I hope that gives you something to think about this week. I hope you'll consider that every time you see a plant or a tree this week. Let me pray for us. God, we all do desire to experience you. Some of us um, have missed that. Some of us have perhaps never fully felt that. Some of us come to that with deep questions and doubts. Many of us are simply caught up in the busyness of our lives and tasks and bills and all sorts of things that we have to do. And so I just pray that even in the next few moments, you might help us to simply experience your presence and your love. Pray this in your name. Amen.